Is the gospel message credible? Can we be sure that the good news about Jesus is true? Across this past week, there have been uh, several public gatherings here in Canberra with Sam Chan to investigate who Jesus is. Uh, Lots of different people have gathered at different times, whether it was Bergman College uh, last Friday night or a couple of uh, breakfast locations or at Old Parliament House on Thursday night. Uh, Each time, question times there, questions were asked that scrutinised the credibility of Christianity. Sam, as the public speaker, he invited people to scrutinise the credibility of Christianity. At Old Parliament House on Thursday night, the topic that Sam was speaking on was hope in a world of fake news and failed leaders. We are getting more and more familiar with fake news. We want to distill the torrent of clickbait and propaganda down to what is true. Is the gospel message fake news? Is it a piece of clickbait that has a hint of truth that sweeps up the masses? Was the early church of the first century a popular movement that was kicked off by a charismatic apostle and just a grain of truth? These are reasonable questions to ask of the gospel movement. Fake news and clickbait are not new phenomena. New words and terms, but not new phenomena. Matthew Ingram is senior writer for the Fortune magazine and he writes about the evolution of media. He says this, The internet didn't invent viral content or clickbait journalism, there's just more of it now and it happens faster. Or Tom uh, Standage, uh, he's business editor for The Economist magazine, He wrote a book, Writing on the Wall, Social Media, the First 2,000 Years. And he says that modern behaviour echoes that of previous centuries. And so speaking about the internet, he says, Internet social media is merely the most recent and most efficient way that humans have found to scratch a prehistoric itch. Fake news and clickbait are not new phenomena and so it's reasonable to ask questions of the gospel movement. Is the gospel message credible? Now now we can't address everything today but at the least I'm hoping that we might see in Acts chapter 24 to 26 that these chapters build towards the credibility of Christianity. But before we look into these chapters, it's important for us to remember why is Luke writing this down? Luke's Gospel and Acts are a two-volume work that go together. And for Luke, the author, credibility and truth matter. Will you turn with me, please, to the very start of this two-volume work, Luke chapter 1, For some reason, our Bible editors have jammed John in between the two volumes. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Have you found it? 
in the midst of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then we get to Acts. Have a look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants to cut through first century clickbait and fake news about Jesus. And so he gives this carefully investigated account of who Jesus is and what's taught about him. And so back in Acts chapter 24 to 26, we have this record of three trials, three court trials, and they're recorded here by Luke, not just as court transcripts that might be archived for legal historians, they're written down for Luke to build up the credibility of the gospel message. And we're going to see some of the key points of the three trials here that Luke recounts. So chapter 24 of Acts is the first trial. It's around about AD 57, 25 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, and Paul is in prison. We saw last week that the Jewish leaders wanted Paul dead because he was preaching Jesus as the Christ. They tried to kill Paul uh, by ambush. They couldn't do that. Uh, now, they're, now they're seeking about the end of Paul through more legal means uh, through the Roman court. And chapter 24 is a trial before the Roman governor in Caesarea. His name is Felix. What is the accusation against, for, against Paul? Let's have a look in verse 5. Chapter 24, verse 5, this is the accusation against Paul. Verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. That's the charge that the Jews bring against Paul. Paul's defence is, well, really? There's no evidence. There's no evidence against me. Verse 12. Verse 12. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Now that's a pretty simple defence. You've got no evidence. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He actually volunteers some extra information and he raises the stakes. So in verse 21, halfway through, he says, It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul raises here in the Roman court the very bit of the gospel message that most clashes with the culture round about him. To talk about the resurrection of the dead. But Paul considers that this is the real source of the dispute. Anyway, 
Felix gives his verdict in verse 22, or rather he adjourns the proceedings. He keeps Paul under guard, gives him some kind of freedom, but Paul remains under guard, not yet charged, for two years. We see in verse 26 that Felix is keeping him there, hoping that Paul will try to bribe his way out of prison. Bottom line, in the Roman court, there is no evidence that destroys the credibility of the gospel message or its messenger. As we come into chapter 25, two years pass by and Paul's case is stirred up again by the Jews to the next Roman governor in Caesarea, Festus. If you're looking for a baby name for a boy, there's one for you, Festus. Welcome, if you're here this morning and your name is Festus. We read in verse 3 of chapter 25, there's another attempt to ambush and kill Paul, uh, but Festus keeps Paul in Caesarea. We're only going to read a few verses in this trial, but notice the emphasis on Paul's innocence. Chapter 25, verse 5. Festus says to the Jewish leaders, let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Down in verse 7, verse 7, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defence, verse 8, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Verse 10, verse 10, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death... I do not refuse to die, but if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now we see there the emphasis on Paul's innocence and Festus in verse 25 is convinced of Paul's innocence, but before Festus can declare that Paul is innocent or guilty, Verse 11, Paul appeals to Caesar. Again, we see there's no evidence that destroys the credibility of the gospel message or its messenger. Paul remains in prison and while he does, Festus discusses Paul's case with Agrippa. Agrippa is the Jewish king. We see in verse 26 of chapter 25, verse 26, that Festus doesn't know what charge to send um, uh, to Caesar against Paul. He's got to be a little bit nervous as a Roman governor out on the edge, uh, sending a prisoner to the emperor himself without an actual charge. So he consults Agrippa. Agrippa wants to hear Paul's defence. And we read earlier on, uh, or Ash read for us, uh, Paul's defence in chapter 26. Now this is not a quiet word in the corner. This is not a quiet little conversation between Paul and King Agrippa. The audience is bigger 
then Agrippa, verse 23. Also there is uh, Bernice, which is Agrippa's sister. Festus is there, the Roman governor, along with high-ranking officers and leading men of the city. While this is only a discussion, Paul is certainly on trial before the leaders of both uh, the Jews and Rome. And what we see here in Paul's defence is that he is far more concerned about the credibility of the gospel message than securing his own freedom. He is far more passionate about preaching Christ than protecting his life. Let's read again from verse 19 in chapter 26, verse 19, where he wraps it all up. Verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven that is just described that came on the Damascus road. Verse 20, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. You see, the gospel message is not a conviction that Paul holds for popularity's sake. Even here on trial, even at the risk of losing his life, he keeps inviting people to make a response to Jesus. So verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. Paul's saying, I'm not insane. This is my conviction. I am absolutely certain of this. Verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, Agrippa, is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul holds this view because he is absolutely convinced of the credibility of the gospel. And the verdict? Well, Paul and the gospel message have indicated Verse 30, though not free. Verse 30, the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul and the gospel message are vindicated, but he remains in chains. Yet this is how God will fulfill his promise that Jesus' followers will bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. This will be how Paul and the gospel message will go all the way to Rome. And we'll see more of that in the next couple of weeks.
But as the gospel message goes and grows, its credibility is built up. At every attempt to defame the messenger, his integrity shines. Every effort to discredit the message actually serves to strengthen it. And so we want to ask the question today, is the gospel message credible? Can we be sure the good news about Jesus is true? There's so much more we can do and should do to assess the credibility of the gospel message. But what we see here in these chapters this morning is that Luke invites this investigation. This is why he has written. These chapters subject the gospel message message and its messenger to rigorous inquiry and it welcomes us to do the same, to cut through the clickbait and the fake news to subject it to fact-checking. You see, as much as the gospel is an historical account, apply historical criticism to it. Where the gospel story intersects with science, consider the patterns of nature that science measures for us. As a written text in the Bible, do the detective work of textual analysis and literary criticism. Philosophy, sociology, cultural studies, they are not enemies of the gospel. The gospel message invites rigorous assessment of its credibility. Now sometimes as we think about the hard bits of the Bible and intersecting it with with culture and philosophy and academia and intellectualism, we can get a little bit nervous that then our belief might become a little bit more shaky. And so we want to just kind of stay where we are on our nice, neat, little, secure block of belief. But my experience is that each time I investigate something else, each time I dig a little bit more deeply, each time I ask a harder question or have been asked a harder question, that I delve further into the internet and things that have been written and said. The more I investigate, the more and more I'm actually convinced of the credibility. And I'm not left on one little block, but the foundation of belief gets bigger and firmer and wider and more certain. It expands and and strengthens my confidence in a Jesus-centred worldview. It gives me a greater clarity for life and a more certain hope for the future. You might be somebody here this morning who has been on the fringe of Christianity for a while. You're somebody who has investigated Jesus, investigating the gospel message. Someone who is very aware of fake news and clickbait. What will it take to move you along this morning. You see, if we sit on the fringe of Christianity for too long, we can start to get comfortable with being on the fringe and start to get comfortable with the questions that we have. I want to encourage you, if that's you, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for years, keep being a sceptic. 
Keep asking your questions. Keep asking your hard questions. I suspect that if you've been here at church for a while and that you've been friends with Christians for a while, you might feel like that asking those hard questions might upset those friendships a little bit. Can I encourage you this morning and encourage those of us here who are Christians to invite that questioning. Go for it. Ask that hard question today. Ask that next question that you have about the credibility of the gospel message. I think, wait for it, being asked hard questions is good for us as Christians. And so if you've got these questions, think right now, what is your next question? Then ask it today. Ask it of the person sitting next to you. Come and visit me. Come and ask one of the elders that you saw serving the Lord's Supper this morning. We might not all know the answers straight away, but we'll work alongside you to find out those answers. Ask the question at your small group this week. Uh, if need be, email it uh, into me on my address on Vital Info. Don't get comfortable with the questions that you have. What will it take to move you along? But maybe it's just time to give Jesus a go. C.S. Lewis is one of the smartest men that has lived. Uh, he's been described uh, as the most thoroughly converted Christian ever. That was not always the case. When C.S. Lewis was a young man, an intellectual man, a rigorous thinker, uh, in his early years he said, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. But as C.S. Lewis considered and questioned and critiqued the world round about him, he was an atheist, he was a theist, he explored the, the occult, he, he, he read all kinds of things and as he, the more he considered, the more he questioned, the more he critiqued the world around about him, in his 40s he began to feel that he could not shut Christianity out of his worldview. He could not make sense of the world without the gospel message. He became, in his own words, a reluctant convert. He had no evidence left to undermine the credibility of the gospel message or reject God as his maker and saviour. Will you give Jesus a go? If you're ready to give Jesus a go, I want to offer you this morning uh, this book, The Essential Jesus. It's volume one of Luke's Gospel and Acts account. It's an opportunity to come face to face with Jesus, who the Gospel message is all about. You see, I don't want anyone to be drawn to Christianity because it's popular because it looks like it's the winning side or because it fits in with our culture or we find an acceptance in a community with it or it's what my family believes or you just get swept up with it because of where you live and when you live in that point in history. I want you to be drawn to 
Christianity because of Jesus. Because of the gospel message about Jesus. News that you will want to click on and where there is nothing fake. It's a credible testimony to who Jesus is, what he has done and what he is doing to call people into an eternal and hope-filled future. And I'd love you to check it out and to keep checking it out and grow in your confidence of the credibility of the gospel message.